The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM with the Middle East Forum Radio Hour. Joined in studio by Marilyn Stern, our producer, and Gary Gamble on the road, giving us the finest analysis from south of Philadelphia. Now, as we get to the big news announced last week, and also yesterday morning with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of the State of Israel and President Donald J. Trump of the United States in the East Room of the White House, announcing the deal of the century. What exactly is this deal? Who's part of it? What does it actually consist of? Who does it affect? Who's accepted it? Who's cajoled it? Who has criticized it? And who has outright rejected it? These are the items that we'll be discussing at the top of the hour. First and foremost, how did we get here? Rather than just paying attention to the finer dynamics of what is every president since Lyndon B. Johnson's effort to try to make peace between Israel and the Palestinians. How did Donald Trump get here? First and foremost, we find that Trump was speaking about making the deal of the century from the outset of his administration. In fact, in his first trip overseas as president of the United States, in May of 2017, he visited two polar opposites of the Middle East. First, he visited Israel, where he gave his blessing in meetings with Prime Minister Netanyahu and also Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, to a renewed sense of negotiations and purpose, with the U.S. acting as the mediator and the middleman between Israel on one side and the Palestinians on the other. He then flew to Riyadh, where he gave his promise to the Islamic world in a joint meeting of the Arab League, the Organization of Islamic Countries, hosted by King Salman of Saudi Arabia, where he said that he would be in a position to not just urge what he calls the end of Islamic extremism in the Middle East and the rest of the world, but also seeing a new dawn of relations between Israel on one side and moderate Sunni Arab states on the other. This was embraced by most of the Arab states that were there, except for a few that were then engaged in civil war, or have now elected or have chosen leaders. For instance, the Hezbollah government in Lebanon, or the new president of Tunisia, or even the new government in Algeria, that had lukewarm feelings towards Israel, but now have outright rejected any reconciliation with the Jewish state. And then a series of of moves by President Trump distanced the Palestinians from the American administration, diametrically opposed to the moves of the previous administration under Barack Obama, where we found President Trump recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. We found him not just freezing, but completely cutting off American funds to UNRWA, the United Nations agency charged with providing international assistance to alleged so-called Palestine refugees. And more and more efforts taken by the president and his administration to embrace Israel and to isolate, reject, and completely reverse any cajoling of the Palestinians and their institutions that may have been embraced by previous administrations. And finally, yesterday, 
Actually, more significant, two days ago, we have to have, have a pretext for the announcement yesterday. President Trump introduces his deal of the century, his ultimate peace plan, as he calls it, between Israel and the Palestinians. Not first to the Palestinians, but he first offers it to Benny Gantz, the presumptive leader of the Israeli opposition in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, head of the largest party, former chief of staff, and to Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel. Because what Trump tried to do is he tried to box in Israel's leadership on both the center left, which is really just the center right, (laughs) and then the Likud on the other side under Netanyahu, that party, and said, Israel, we need you to agree with a certain degree of unanimity, except for maybe the far left and the Arab parties, that this peace plan, it's going to be good for you. And then when he makes the announcement the following day, he says, you know what? 30% of the West Bank, all of the Jewish towns and villages and cities that have been built since 1967, you're not going anywhere. You can stay where you are. In fact, we're going to give you even more room. 30% of the territory that was returned in 1967 after the Six-Day War, that's now going to be considered under Israeli sovereignty. Yeah, you're going to have to give up some land on the Egyptian border. You're going to have to expand the amount of industrial and commercial space in one area of the Negev Desert sitting on the Egyptian border. You're going to have to give agricultural land and residential land even further south of that, about halfway to a lot between Rafiah on the Israeli-Gaza border, and then also a lot, which is in the southernmost point where Jordan, Egypt, and Israel meet. But part and parcel, the Palestinians are going to get about twice about the amount of land that they have right now, and all the expectations that every other American administration, every other peace plan, whether it was concocted by Jimmy Carter or the Arab League, or Saudi princes, or the European Union, or the Quartet, any other body which has given an idea or a proposal on the ground, what we're going to do is say, that's null and void. You, Israel, on the other hand, have to accept that you can no longer build in certain areas called Area A and B for the next four years. You're going to have to build a tunnel, a 34-kilometer tunnel, Maryland. One of the longest tunnels in the long, even the channel between Paris and London that goes under the English Channel is smaller than this concoction that they came up with. It's not above ground, it's underground. And you're going to have to allow for $50 billion of economic development to allow in Egypt, Jordan, and Gaza and the West Bank. Now, If I was getting a $50 billion aid deal, if I was expanding twice the amount of land that I was originally on, and I had every opportunity just to say yes, because I know that in the next American administration that very well well may be Democratic, I could even ask for more. If I'm a Palestinian, or I'm a Palestinian leader, I'll say, sure, give me the land. Give me the billions of dollars. I'd love to benefit from this. Thank you, Mr. President. And then I'm going to ask for more as soon as he's gone. That's what I would do if I was a Palestinian. But of course, using the age-old maxim, never missing an opportunity to miss an opportunity, President Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, head of the Palestinian Authority, gets on Palestinian television and says, we don't reject this deal once, we don't reject this deal twice, we reject this deal 1,000 times. And he was backed by Iran, by Turkey, 
and a few other Arab states. Supporting the deal was actually maybe the one of the few things that some Gulf states could agree on. You both had the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia encouraging negotiations, joining them, Egypt, Jordan, and Qatar. That was an interesting rub to see in what happened yesterday during the announcement. But beyond the deal of the century, another government was sworn in into the Middle East this month, and that is the new Hezbollah government in Lebanon. We'll be discussing that next with Tony Bedron. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance, in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here with Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM. Joining us next, Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and I think for the twice time in two months, as many discussing the unrest and uproar in Lebanon, Mr. Tony Badran. Tony, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Greg. Great to be with you. And Thank you for your ongoing coverage of what's going on in Lebanon and also, uh, you know, these major developments. I think actually showing light and showing truth to a prophecy that you've been telling for the past 20 years, actually not even a, a prophecy. Some people have called you out saying that when you make the claim that Hezbollah has been running the Lebanese government for the better part of two decades, they said, no, that couldn't be true. It's a Sunni who's in charge. It's someone else who's in charge. And for the first time, we now have incoming Lebanese Prime Minister Hassan Diab leading an actual Hezbollah government. Right. I mean, it's important to to distinguish uh, between uh, facades and, you know, the actual reality that undergirds the political order. Uh, and, the, and the balance of power that under, undergirds the political order. And that's where people, for whatever motivations, usually have failed to, to, uh, to, to make that distinction, which is to say, okay, well, if you have a, a number of, uh, you know, sectarian parties, uh, you know, sharing in various portfolios in the government, that means that this is a, uh, a sort of a multilateral government with, with you know with a lot of power centers and that could put constraints on hezbollah's power i mean that's just stuff usually that people say 
to sell Washington on uh, a set of policies, namely to continue to give aid to Lebanon, not to, you know, sanction uh, too heavily, you know, let's say, uh, I don't know, the banking sector or, or individuals or entities and so on and so forth. So sort of to keep a distinction between Lebanon as a political order and, and government and Hezbollah as a terrorist group. And what we've seen now with this government is only that you, this facade has been lifted in that Hezbollah uh, shaped it, formed it, picked the people that they want and, and sort of and the other people who usually share in that government decided to stay out of it. But the, the, that doesn't change the, the basic dynamic that in the past, even when you had other sectarian leaders and, you know, prime ministers and whatever, in in those governments it didn't change the fact that those two were equally shaped and formed by hezbollah because hezbollah is the power that undergirds the entire system the entire political order um, and so now this time we just they've just basically simply dropped the pretenses and uh and to what effect remains to be seen incidentally because it's unclear whether this they intend for this government to be uh, to, to, to govern, uh, for an extended period of time, or if its role is simply, or function is simply to be a, a form of a sacrificial, uh, lamb or a sort of a transitional, uh, period until, uh, uh, sort of they re-engineer a return for, let's say, the former Prime Minister Hariri and others who would join in a, in a government again and present that to the world as some form of a, a, a national unity government that would then appeal to the international community for economic and financial assistance. So we have a parliamentary majority that has, like you said before, like uh, before, it's basically shed the sheep's clothing. It is now a wolf all out right now, right? We haven't seen the effects yet. We haven't even seen the first decisions which have been reached by this prime minister take effect or his government. But it's been called the Halloween government by the protesters in Beirut. As Firas Maksad writes in Foreign Policy, the thinly disguised ties between incoming ministers and Lebanon's corrupt political bosses has now been given the term the Halloween government. They are dressing up and trying to come up with something that is anathema to what the former government had seen. But if I was a country and I was protesting inflation and if I was looking at stringent messages like taxes on WhatsApp and trying to find other creative devices to not be able to actually tax the country's wealth and fix myself and get out of the economic doldrums, the last thing that I would do, or at least if I was trying to put on some, some sort of semblance of, of reaching out to creditors in the West to improve my economy, is to pick the most sanctioned entity in the Middle East to lead my government. What does this mean right. for Lebanon's what? economic situation? Exactly. But that, uh, so the first thing, the, the quote that you read, it leaves, uh, leaves out the fact that the protesters include the entirety of the political class in their criticism, right? So it's not as though, well, this political, uh, this government reflects the corrupt political elite and sort of the other guys who are the good guys are left out of it. And when the good guys come back, only then can the international community and the creditors give give Lebanon money. That's not true. The protesters' uh, uh, criticism is that the entirety of the political class, Hariri, 
Zumblat, Berry, Hezbollah, Aoun, everybody is part of the same cartel that runs the Lebanese quote-unquote economy and the Lebanese political system. That's the, that's the main message, because all of these guys were together in governments, in, in so-called national unity governments, for decades. So it's not, it's not as though, this is the, a, a very important point, because the temptation could be, and this is why I said that the function of this government may be only transitional, to return us to those former uh, national unity formats in the government and then present that as though Hezbollah tried to go it alone in forming a government and failed. And now it's a retreat for Hezbollah where it has to give room back to Hariri and the other guys. And therefore, the United States should now jump in and support these good guys uh, uh, to, to further weaken Hezbollah. That's not true. The protesters' message is that these guys are in it together. And that's the whole point. Uh, the, the corruption that seeds and emanates from the political order and feeds the political order and the, and those who supervise it is, uh, is, is unanimous and ubiquitous. It is all of these political barons, sectarian political barons, they're all part of the corruption. And that's what the protesters are rejecting. And what we've seen actually is, is there's another actor that I'm going to raise in a second that has had a similar role in the past regarding bailing out failing economies, especially those, uh, with a lot of domestic strife taking place. And I want to mention another part of this article, which uh, came out from Iksad, where he speaks about Qatar's potential role in Lebanon. And I quote, Some Lebanese, including Central Bank Governor Riyadh Salame, are hoping to be rescued by Qatar, whose leaders regularly traverse the unsettled waters between Iran and the West. Qatar has helped Hezbollah in the past, and its Emir and Foreign Minister have both visited Iran since the January 3rd killing of Quds Force Commander Qasem Soleimani. Qatar could buy some goodwill in Beirut, historically an area of influence or rival Saudi Arabia. Do you think the Qataris are going to help bail them out? No, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, uh, first of all, even what the even if the Qataris were to put in money, uh, uh, the amount of money that's required for the Lebanese to uh, to uh, get out of this crisis that they're in is is humongous. That the Qataris are not going to be able to shoulder it anyway. Um, so uh, if the Qataris decide to give anything, which I, I still find doubtful, uh, it would be a stopgap measure simply to inject some liquidity in the bank so that they can continue to buy, uh, you know, essentials uh, for imports, basically gasoline, wheat, uh, medicine, etc. But it doesn't at all uh, address the structural problem. That, that, that's, that's the issue here. The, the Lebanon, Lebanon's problem is structural and it's directly tied to the political cartel, that, uh, uh, which is also the economic cartel that runs the country. The banks, all these banks that you hear about in Lebanon, their boards are all uh, 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 formed by people who are connected to or directly part of the political elite. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's literally a, a, a cartel. So it's not, it's not like a, a, when you're describing a Western economy or, you know, uh, and a separation between you know, um, the, the, the politics and the government and the parliament and, and, and the economic structures and so on. It's that, that stuff doesn't exist in, in Lebanon. So the, the root of the problem is that, and of course, on top of it all, like you mentioned earlier, there's a designated terrorist organization <laughs> and, and, and transnational criminal organizations is also an important thing, a drug trading organization that is 
that undergirds that entire system in partnership with the other sectarian barons. That's the problem. So, uh, and, and for them to reform that system is an oxymoron because that requires them going after their own interests, which they're not going to do, meaning the, the, the political, the political elite. And so, uh, that's the, that's the major dilemma, whether, whether someone injects, you know, uh, $500 million or $2 billion or whatever, that's just, that's just not going to, 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 to solve anything at all. Uh, and eventually it's going to, and it's been this kind of enabling of this political elite in Lebanon that has led the country to the, to the abyss that finds itself in today. Um, and so I, I, I disagree about, you know, uh, uh, you know, people trying to buy influence in Lebanon and, and so on. That's, I mean, that's just, that's anachronistic at this point, I, I, I think. Yeah, I mean, the, the actual, the rejoinder there is is that when Turkey was facing biting U.S. sanctions on aluminum and steel tariffs because of its holding of Andrew Parsons back in June of two years ago, we found that the Qataris injected $15 billion into the Turkish Central Bank, thereby giving a little bit of floating to the Turkish lira. Uh, the only supposition here on the Lebanese side is that the Qataris have a bone to pick with Lebanon's traditional, or rather Lebanon's, the Lebanese Sunni community's traditional backers, like the Saudis, even the Emiratis have some investments there, and they might be able to do the same thing. But you are right, $90 billion in debt, uh, their currency losing 30% of its value just in the past few months alone, dwindling foreign reserves. I mean, the country is teetering on the brink of collapse. A similar economic situation only existed in 1975 and 1976 with the launch of the Lebanese Civil War. So let's play out the worst case scenario here. Hezbollah takes control of the government. The economy is not fixed. And the protesters continue their uproar. Are we looking at a second civil war? I mean, some form of, of uh, violence is... is uh, is very possible, I think, you know, and, and, you know, we're already seeing elements of it. Uh, at this point, it's still sort of the government forces and the pro-government thugs, meaning, you know, whether they are supporters of Hezbollah or Amal or the Aounist movement or uh, other, other thugs associated with the, with, with the, with the current government and, and political order. Um, against protesters. I mean, you're seeing it at that level. You're seeing elements of violence by, uh, uh, by some of the people who are protesting against, uh, against, I mean, you know, who these people are, I don't know, but against banks, for instance, because people's frustrations are boiling over because basically the banks are, are imposing arbitrary uh, capital controls. And they're not allowing people to withdraw more than, let's say, $200 a week. Um, so their ability, so their money is basically, uh, is lost and, uh, and people have debts to pay, have bills to pay and schools and so on, and they're unable to access their funds. So, uh, ultimately this could, could lead to, to uh, an explosion. It could lead to crime. Uh, you know, if people decide to, you know, they don't have money and they need to get money. And, and so, you know, so there are possibilities for different types of uh, civil violence. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see where that goes. But uh, but uh, we have to also remember that there is a, um, a pro- sort of a preponderance of force on the side of Hezbollah because it is the one with the weapons, and so and the training. And so the uh, how a broader civil war 
on the scale of what happened in 1975 could be reproduced at this point uh, is, is harder to see. You can find localized uh, violence, perhaps, uh, but it's it, but sort of the deterioration of the situation to what you found in 1975. I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult. But it's but obviously expecting violence is is not uh, is certainly not uh, out of order. I think. Marilyn here. Maxad's article concluded with his advice to the Trump administration that they uh, approach the government, the new government there, with strategic patience. Is that a philosophy that you? endorse he said let it collapse under its own weight what's your opinion well because the, the the point of view in that article is that again if the return of with the return of hariri then somehow we have something to work with and it's not the only article there are several articles um by uh, by lebanese uh, experts in in dc who put forward the same uh, the same point of view which is that you know uh, if we get Hariri back into uh, into the government or the mar- so-called March 14 political figures back into a government, uh, then the United States can kind of work with these guys to affect reforms, and and there and then the United States can uh, protect its so-called you know you saw also the former ambassador to Lebanon uh, Jeffrey Saltman make similar uh, you know similar uh, recommendations that the United States should not abandon its quote-unquote equities in Lebanon, be they the Lebanese armed forces or its friends there who, who have a pro-Western orientation or whatever folkloric language that was used in this, in this <laughs> context, to, to basically say that the United States should not abandon uh, its investment in, in Lebanon. Uh, uh, and, but to what end? <laughs> Nobody really says, right? What's the, what's the purpose of this for from, for for the United States? Uh, nobody really has a has an answer, especially in the case of the Lebanese armed forces today and the security apparatuses more generally that are funded by the United States. I mean, these guys are in in are involved in some very serious uh, repression against the against these uh, protesters. I mean, if you see the footage and the videos of the kind of beatings that these guys and arbitrary arrests that these guys are being subjected to. Uh, it's it's quite appalling that the United States has any um, any relation to that in terms of its funding these 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 groups and 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 what order are these guys protecting? I mean that's the, that's one of the basic contradictions of the United States policy in places like Iraq and in places like Lebanon, where we're saying well the antidote to Iranian influence in in these countries is for us to build up the state the state institutions. And when we build up the state institutions, we weaken the IRGC militias and the Hezbollah militias that run these places uh, at, the, at Iran's behest. Well, guess what? The state and the state institutions are run by the militias. So your support of the state and its institutions, as they then support the political order that, 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 uh, that they oversee, you are supporting a Hezbollah or IRGC militia state, state institutions, and political order. They, they don't make that distinction. The distinction is, is fictitious, and we're the only people making it. So we're saying we want to prop up the state. Well, great. The Lebanese army is propping up the state by beating up people in the streets <laughs> <laughs> who are protesting against this Hezbollah government and against the Hezbollah-led order, which involves everybody. 
Everybody. And Haiti, Tony, Tony it's, Blood, it's, all of them. it's not just the United States, which is saying, let's build up the state, let's focus on state institutions. You have the UN Special Envoy to Lebanon, Jan Kubis, saying in a tweet five days ago, don't let political considerations blur major positive development. Six women in the government means 30%. A woman for the first time as deputy prime minister and minister of defense. Help them to succeed. Judge them on their results. But you give me a minister and the party that backs them, I'll tell you what to judge them on. This is a Hezbollah government. That's it. Well, well, look, the funny thing about it, I mean, again, you know, uh, leaving, again, all that folkloric language aside, I mean, the, the point of... Uh, uh, it's very possible that this government can uh, initiate, you know, uh, anti-corruption drives, but anti-corruption drives that are targeting specific people and specific forms of corruption that don't involve their own corruption. I mean, Nabil Burri, for instance, the Speaker of Parliament, is part of this is part of this government, right? Nabil Burri is a notorious. I mean, he is the godfather of corruption. In, in Lebanon, right? The for, the um, the Aounist movement, the former foreign minister Gibran Basil, for instance, who's now outside the government, but he is really the kingmaker from 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 the outside, right? Is notoriously corrupt. No, he, he and his associates. Um, uh, Hezbollah itself, we don't even we, we spoke about it as a as a transnational criminal organization and a drug trading organization. Tremendous uh, uh, corruption. So. These guys aren't going to investigate themselves, right? But they can enact anti-corruption drives that target the corruptions of the Hariris, let's say, or the Jumblas, which would be perfectly legitimate because they're all corrupt. <laughs> but it doesn't address the structural and systemic corruption because the entirety of that elite is involved in it. And the United States saying, well, we want that elite to fight corruption is, is, is really silly. That's why the protest movement is saying, no, 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 we want that entire political class out. We don't, these guys are all thieves and corrupt uh, oligarchs. We want them all out. And we want a new crew to come in and to, be, and to see what we can do to, to, to salvage this mess that, that, we, that we have to find ourselves in. And so the United States to continue to say, well, we're going to give this government a chance. And then uh, and, and people say, well, this is the Hezbollah government. Well, it doesn't matter. Even if Hariri comes back and the United States <laughs> says, well, we're going to give that government a chance. It's still a Hezbollah government anyway, just a Hezbollah government with a Hariri facade at the front. And then Hariri can go and act like Hezbollah's bag man and collect outside and bring money in. That's their hope. I'm not saying it's going to happen because people are really sick and tired of the Lebanese's corruption and their inability to do anything at all. So there's very little enthusiasm on anyone's part to really uh, pump money into that, into that country because it's like really, it's throwing money away effectively. So I think, uh, and, and like I said, the, the amounts of money that are required are so huge that I don't, you know, nobody really has that the appetite for that kind of undertaking with this particular po political class uh, in charge of things because they know what these guys are about. They are going to take the money and they're not going to do anything. Tony Bajran, Senior Fellow, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, columnist for Tablet Magazine, an all-around Lebanon expert. Thank you for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. And now we have on the line E.J. Kimball, Director of the Forum's Israel Victory Project, with the latest on the structure of the deal of the century. E.J., we started off the program this morning speaking about the background of how we got to this point. Tell us what happened in the White House yesterday. Well, uh, at the White House yesterday, President Trump, obviously, as everyone knows, revealed the, uh, you know, the vision for peace or 
known the Trump deal of the century. Uh, but what it seems uh, the president came out with was calling upon the Palestinians to accept the reality that they've lost. Um, come to grips with it. If you do, there's a future waiting for you. If not, we're moving forward with or without you. So let's let's dissect that into two parts. Bifurcate. With you, what does it look like with the Palestinians? What does it look like for the Palestinians? If they agree, what do uh, they get? If they agree, they get essentially, um, I would call it statehood light, uh, not sort of the full um, sovereignty of traditional states, but they would have their own territory governing that territory, running it like any other state with internal uh, governance. Um, they would have a massive influx of cash to help build up this state. They'll get, you know, so much more territory than they currently control at the moment. Um, and they get full recognition in you know, the community of states around the world. And the likely route, them rejecting, I mean, they've already rejected it. Abu Mazen said right. on uh, radio right. yesterday, I reject this a thousand times over. What does that right. look like? Well, what that looks like is that all the territory that was laid out that would be uh, Israeli territory under the plan that's laid out in the maps, uh, the U.S. will give Israel its full backing. If Israel wants to annex it, the U.S. is going to recognize their sovereignty there. So sort of what uh, the administration basically said in, in, to the Israelis is, you know, we've accepted this reality, and if you're ready to move forward, we've got your back. This seems like a, a basic, uh, you know, reverb of the Israel victory mentality. Can you tell us how this jives with our project? Well, it, it, it jives very, very close. And, and there's been many people writing about the fact that uh, I think Robert Malley, formerly running the crisis working group, said essentially the message is to the Palestinians, you've lost, get over it, which is, you know, a good, good, uh, um, metaphor for the Israel Victory Project, which says to the Palestinians, you've lost the war. If you're willing to accept this, you need to actually accept the Jewish state and your rejectionism. And once you do that, then you can actually come to the table and talk and figure out a way forward that works for both sides. But until you get to that point, it's a war and you don't compromise in war until one side gives up. And it, this jives very close with what we've been working on for uh, the past three and a half years here. So they're given a hope of a better future. You have titles in the plan like Peace to Prosperity or a vision to improve the, to improve the lives of the Palestinian and Israeli people. But within an hour of the plan being presented, first of all, the Palestinians weren't even in the White House when it was given out. Second of all, they're already rejecting it prior to its release. Then they reject it again after its release. And I, I got to tell you, even though this may fall upon the precepts of give up, it's over, this is what it's going to look like. Another administration could come in, you know, dare I say, under Bernie Sanders and say, you know what, we're going to do the same thing to the Israelis. I mean, isn't the real focus here uh, temporal and what it should be is a shift to making the Palestinians capitulate and give up? Well, it, that's, it's a good point that you raised. I think if you look at the details of the plan, Israel is not required to do anything uh, or sort of to have any concessions until the Palestinians have actually ended their war, until the Palestinians have taken the required steps. So on the one hand, it's 
in a sense for Israel, it's a no-lose situation um, based on what they have, the Israeli government has been pushing. Um, now, your point about the future, a future president coming in and changing things, this is important because when President Clinton uh, essentially issued his parameters at the end of his second term, even though that wasn't going anywhere, it essentially became U.S. policy for the past nearly 20 years. So what President Trump has proposed here, which is essentially Israel can do what it needs that's in its interest and the U.S. is aligned with Israel now. Um, if President Trump were to get a second term, I think that would help cement this as the potential U.S. policy moving forward for future administrations that may be locked into this new, this new narrative, this new policy shift. Because prior to Bill Clinton, the talk of a two-state solution did not occur in the United States. Right. But I mean, I have to tell you, Clinton was no Obama and Bush was certainly no Trump. I mean, if anything, we have this um, widening, this cleavage which has been created. It's almost like a valley that's too far to cross. And it's too deep to even comprehend in terms of policy differences between the previous administration and this current one. So just like the pendulum swung all the way to the left from 2009 to 2017, I think that the Democrat perception of this, and we see this already in the statements that are coming out from Chris Van Hollen and a Senate letter that was released yesterday. We see this already from the squad. I mean, but they're, they're not really a, a barometer to have a reliable political reading of what's going on in Washington. They're still hopefully on the far left in that, um, you know, ultra progressive camp. I'd say even the ultra anti-Israel BDS, even in some reigns, anti-Semitic camp. But part and parcel, Democrats have almost uniformly rejected this. Republicans have embraced it. So it seems like if it's a 2020 issue in terms of the election campaign, whoever's the Democratic nominee will come out against it. Whoever's the, unless it's Michael Bloomberg, maybe maybe that's the rub that we'll see you give that speech in, in, uh, in, um, in Florida two nights ago before the release of this uh, deal of the century saying you could be pro-Israel and Democrat at the same time. That was an interesting situation that came out. But what I'm trying to get out here is, is that this seems like it's more just a political play. It's not an actual peace plan. I don't think it's going to change markers in terms of where administrations stand just because of the time it's being released, the background it's being released on. And while it is earth shattering and ground shifting and it's been embraced by all Israeli Zionist political parties, except for maybe merits, it's just kind of a blip on the radar. I mean, the Palestinians have already considered it to be a no, a, a, a no go. You know, you don't even have Arafat there. Um, Marilyn, what's your thoughts? Yeah, EJ, I'm just curious. Do you have any uh, information about whether there are any new leaders post Mazen that are percolating on the Arab side amongst the Palestinians? Uh, I'm not. I'm not aware of any. Uh, but getting back to your point, Greg, I, you know. The Russians have called for embracing, you know, for discussion. The the Brits have called for discussions and for both sides to really look at this and to engage on it. Um, obviously, there's been some Arab countries that have, uh, uh, I believe the Saudis called for negotiations to resume, um, the Egyptians. So there's, now while the Democrats, anything that President Trump does, no matter what, in very rare instances, will Democrats support it? Um, I think that if you look at some of the elements of the plan, if some of these countries on the international stage can embrace certain elements of it and start to push it themselves, that will change the international consensus 
um, on a framework for discussing the end of the conflict. If the rest of the world embraces the fact that there will be no right of return into Israel no matter what, well, that changes the the approach to dealing with UNRWA. Um, now, I'm not saying that that's happening, but those are potential things that could happen from this. Did politics play a part in this? 100%. I mean, the timing of this, um, you know, sort of if it wasn't now, it was never coming out. On a balmy Tuesday afternoon in January, there was no impeachment trial going on, no immunity discussions going on in the Israeli parliament either, 10,000 kilometers away. It was a perfect day to release a peace plan. The exact opposite of what I think reality reflected yesterday. But um, Congress, what's their take? What are members of the House and the Senate saying about this? Um, well, there's, you know, the I'm actually up in the House heading into some meetings now uh, to, to discuss this. I think, um, you know, I think you've laid it out pretty good on the Democratic side. There's sort of a rejection of it. Um, Although specifics, you know, the specific rejections are focused on uh, Palestinian requirements. Uh, it's the first time Palestinians have been called upon to actually be responsible for their actions and not placing the onus on Israel for the failure of an agreement to be reached. So e- you know, I'm sure there'll be more and more statements coming out in the next few hours and days. EJ, thank you for joining us this morning. Go enjoy your meetings right. on the Hill. Hopefully we'll have you on soon. Thanks. Sounds good. Thank you. And after these messages, we'll be back. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at meforum. Forum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. I'm Greg Roman, your host, joined by Marilyn Stern, our producer, and Gary Gamble, who will be with us on the line with the latest from Middle East Forum Online, a new segment covering all of the latest news and the top highlights from the Middle East Forum's website and all of our activity from all of our fellows throughout the Middle East and the rest of the world. But first, I thought that I would share with you some of the reactions to the deal of the century as being opined by American pro-Israel organizations, both on the left and the right. And even some who are you know, categorizing themselves as Jewish organizations or Israel-interested, but who have roundly condemned President Trump's deal of the century. 
Starting off, Daniel Sokach, CEO of the New Israel Fund, a major proponent of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement supporting organizations in Israel, said the proposal threatens to make the occupation permanent and is not the vision of Israel's founders. I think that any American president that's willing to give Israel more rope to deal with its own problems isn't hanging it. It's getting it a little bit more slack to be more flexible in terms of what it's able to deal with. In addition, we also have former U.S. ambassador to Israel. Um, actually, no, that's not from his point of view. Sorry. The Republican Jewish Coalition endorses the plan with its executive director, Matt Brooks, saying, The president and his team have put together a bold and nuanced proposal that is deeply rooted in America's core values of liberty, opportunity, and hope for the future. I don't think that the head of the RJC would have any other choice other than to endorse this deal, considering the fact that some of his major supporters are also the president's. APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, said it appreciates the efforts of President Trump and his administration to work in consultation with the leaders of the two major Israeli political parties to set forth ideas to resolve the conflict in a way that recognizes our allies' critical security needs. Palestinians must rejoin Israelis at the negotiating table. But then on the other side, we have the executive director of the Jewish Democratic Council of America, Halle Seufer, saying, The plan is a green light for Israeli annexation of the West Bank, an intentional undermining of a viable two-state solution, and another example of Trump using Israel to further his domestic political agenda. J Street piles on describing the plan as the logical culmination of repeated bad faith steps this administration has taken to validate the agenda of the Israeli right, prevent the achievement of a viable negotiated two-state solution, and ensure that Israel's illegal occupation of Palestinian territory in the West Bank becomes permanent. Gary, I'm sure you've been following what's been going on with all these different critiques of the deal. What's your take? My, my take is that the a lot of the terms of the deal makes sense in that you know the reality is that uh you know for example major israeli settlement blocks are going to be annexed the reality is that the palestinians aren't going to have a capital inside jerusalem uh but i don't see a lot of back-end work by the administration trying to implement the plan so i so i think you know it's it's fine as a statement of principles and we can celebrate uh, that there's some more realism involved there. But I, I don't see it leading to a resumption of the peace process. I need both of you to tell me whether you think I'm right, wrong, or or maybe I've got a mix here in, in my take. I don't really care about any peace process. What I care about is a war process that has not ended in the last 101 years of Palestinian rejectionism. The psyche of the Palestinian people, what is in their guts, what they wake up in the morning to is what has to be tackled here. And no peace plan, whether it's out of Brussels, Washington, Moscow, or any other world capital, can deal with that. Because at the end of the day, you heard the Palestinian reaction to this plan, even though it was probably the most generous that was ever offered to them in terms of the economic incentives that were offered with this dose of realism that they were granted yesterday. It was certainly was the most beneficial for Israel. But even if Israel were to accept it, 
What is to stop a Palestinian from waking up in the morning to say, I have a Swiss cheese state in a 34 kilometer underground tunnel that's dark and, and, and vicious. Okay, so my GDP has been promised to increase. So my economic opportunity has been promised to increase. So I now have more land in the Negev desert where I can plant my crops and I can build my factories. That's not the basis of Palestinian rejectionism. The basis of rejectionism is the fact that they feel like the whole land is theirs. And until they get it or until it's beaten out of them, they're going to still demand that. Marilyn, what's your take? It depends what they fear more, a hopeless future or trying to grab at least some movement towards the future for their children. With the Abu Mazen at the helm and no new leaders emerging to challenge him and to challenge that rejectionism, they're just going to stay stuck. It feels like the fuel of the Palestinian psyche is the hope for a hopeless future. It's it's what they live off of. Well, they don't have to worry about dark tunnels. That's dark enough. <laughs> Gary? Well, I, I think it may be an exaggeration to say that uh, this rejectionism is felt by Palestinians writ large. Um, you know, polling, my understanding is that polling among Palestinians depends a great deal on how things are phrased. Certainly, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a silent majority that would would very readily exchange some of these unrealistic dreams of, of you know, driving the Jews out of Israel, uh, reclaiming Jerusalem and all this stuff for a better life. The problem, and, and I think this, this is the problem, regardless of whether rejectionism is embraced by 20% of the population or 70% of the population, the problem is it's very difficult for me to imagine the leadership of, of the Palestinian Authority embracing this kind of deal and not running into immediate problems. You know, if 20% of the population is willing to risk its life committing terrorist attacks to undermine a, a quote-unquote moderate Palestinian approach to relations with Israel, um, then the peace process is going to is going to collapse. So you know, re rejectionism isn't just a matter of of uh, bringing a majority of Palestinians on board. It has to reach far deeper than that because you know we found over and over again, a ver a, even a small percentage of radicals um, can make it impossible for moderates to thrive. Right, and I think that you have a point here that it's the Palestinian leadership that are. Uh, concerned, uh, fearful, uh, uncertain of what would happen if they were to embrace Trump's initiative. But it's the age-old adage. We just have to outlast. I mean, and you know, Daniel Pipes has written extensively on what are the root causes of Palestinian rejectionism. He says one is the Palestinian national identity and how it thinks. Two is the enabling forces of the left, both in Europe and also other forces that are anti-Israel overseas, that are extraterritorial to the Israelis and the Palestinians' uh, claims over where they are in the Middle East. And the third is the Israeli security establishment that enables Palestinian rejectionism by coddling them and rewarding them through what he calls a good doggy mentality. Every time they start getting upset, they try to give treats to the Palestinians to placate them. But let's focus on the first, that of the internal Palestinian rejection of Israel, otherwise known in Arabic as Samud. One, there's a religious element to it. Dar al-Harb and Dar al-Islam. We took this land. It's ours. 
get out is their message to Israel. Two, the idea of resistance, that they'll keep on going and keep on going and sacrifice themselves to the last martyr until they get what they want, which is the liberation of Jerusalem and every other Israeli city which has been set up over the last hundred years. But the third element is this idea of time. You know, there is no temporal identity amongst Palestinians. They think we were able to outlast the Crusaders. We were able to outlast the occupation. We were able to outlast anyone else who tried to take our land. We'll outlast the Zionist project. It's not a matter of if the Israelis will be defeated. It's when. And I think that it's very, very hard to look at this as just an issue that maybe 20% of the population embraces. I mean, writ large, every Palestinian in Gaza is suffering in one way or another. Yes, the West Bank has a better situation for them, but until they're forced to internalize the question of, my children will suffer worse than I do because of the, policy, the, pol- the, the policies that my leaders have embraced, I don't think they face real consequences for their leader's rejectionists. I mean, just the way that you defeat a force on the other side is to distribute your force equally amongst all rather than just targeted deterrence at the top, I think that the regular Palestinian people have to feel the pain of their leader's rejection in order to be able to revolt against them. Gary, what's your take? Well, I, I think they felt that pain. You know, as, as uh, I guess as Abba even said, Palestinian leaders never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And because of that, you know, I mean, you, you can't tell me that the average Palestinian in Gaza hasn't paid a very dear price uh, economically uh, in terms of physical well-being. I, I can I can tell you that, but I can also tell you that the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, right after the last bombing by the PFLP in the West Bank, said 61% of Palestinian Arabs approved that bombing on an innocent Israeli family, guilty, as it was phrased, of going throughout the West Bank. The breakdown included 49% of Palestinians live in Gaza. Excuse me, 49% of Palestinians living in the West Bank. 80% of Gazans back that too. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's a problem. I mean, I, mean I, I, I would look at Palestinian, I'm not an expert on the issue. I would look at Palestinian public opinion polls over time. Do they, do they, do they, uh, does opposition to terror attacks decline when economic conditions are good? Does it get higher when economic conditions are bad? I have no idea whether that's the case. But I, what, I, what I would say is this. I, I, I think it's probably too much to ask for the, Palest- the average Palestinian to come to a mindset of fully accepting the legitimacy of Israel as a Jewish state. What they need to accept is that the legitimacy of Israel as a Jewish state isn't the end of the discussion. You know, it, 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 it's possible for, for someone to have an opinion in the abstract, but at the same time love their children more than they hate Israel. It, that's actually another Israel. I think Golda Meir said that. The, yeah, when they love their children. Palestinians love their children more than they hate us. In other words, Palestinians, in my view, don't, don't have to stop seeing the average Palestinian doesn't have to stop disliking Israel. They simply have to um, come to a different viewpoint of, of appreciating, uh, caring for their families, et cetera, in the here and now. 
Gary, thank you for joining us again this morning. I hope we'll have you back in studio next week. And we have an exciting program next week that Marilyn has been able to put together. She has Jonathan Conricus, the spokesperson for the Israeli Defense Forces Foreign Division, and also another guest that will be briefing us the latest on Iran. This is Greg Roman, host of Middle East Forum Radio with Marilyn Stern in studio, Gary Gamble on the line, Tony Bedron. Thanks for joining us this morning. Everyone, have a good week here on WWDB 860 AM, signing off.